I'm Kirk Harnett. On This Week in Radio Tech, I'm joined by Chris Tarr, Chris Tobin, and our guest, Donna Halper. We're talking about radio programming, promotions, and some very positive reports about radio listening. Twert is up next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Radio Tech, episode 92, recorded July 20th, 2011. Donna Halper. This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Axia Audio and the new Radius IP Audio Console. Feature-rich, affordable IP audio consoles on the web at axiaaudio.com. Plus, check out some of the 2,200 Axia IP Audio studios worldwide at clients.axiaaudio.com. Hello, it's time for This Week in Radio Tech. I'm Kirk Harnack, your host. Very glad to be with you and glad you could join us. Uh, this is the show where we talk about radio technology. And on this episode of the show, well, a little bit more than, than just the usual electrons and, and capacitors and resistors and tubes technology, we're going to be talking about radio programming and how programmers and engineers get to work together, how they can work together um, better because sometimes they're really kind of at odds with each other. And what, what engineers can learn from programmers about how to get the radio product, the audio, the entertainment out to the listener. That's our job. That's what we're here to do. Uh, joining me on the show, uh, two of my regular co-hosts. First of all, let's start with the tongue tangler in Muckwanago, Wisconsin. It's Chris Tarr. Hey, Chris. <laughs> Hi there, Kirk. I am the uh, Director of Engineering for Intercom's radio stations in Milwaukee and Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, you can find me at geekjedi.com. Good deal. And also, the best dressed engineer in radio, my friend from Manhattan, New York, it's Chris Tobin. Hi, Chris. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, with the CBS radio group here in New York City and uh, six radio stations, 3 a.m., 3 uh, FM. And my job as the technologist, a broadcast technologist, is to find ways to make money with technology. And uh, lately, it's been a little slow. The summer has been a little too slow for us. Mm. Well, we'll try to speed, you know, speed, speed things up for us. I don't wish any, uh, any failures on you, no problems. But uh, Oh, no, no, no. We'll be good. We'll be good. And uh, I'm Kirk Harnack. I uh, am the uh, sales director for uh, uh, Telos, Omnia, and Axia, the Telos Alliance. And I'm coming to you this week from one of my favorite places in the world. It's the Eastern Command of This Week in Radio Tech. I'm, at, uh, I'm in uh, Isle of Palms, South Carolina, uh, on vacation with my family and my best friends. So we're just having a great time here, uh, right just a f uh, three, four blocks from the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, coming to you, to you from out here. But uh, normally, my job is uh, I do some engineering work for some stations that I'm part owner of. I own the part that doesn't make any money. And uh, uh, that's why I work for Telos, and uh, I really enjoy working for Telos. They come up with some really cool products. And in fact, our show is brought to you uh, this week by Axia and the IP audio routing systems and consoles that Axia makes. We'll talk about those later. All right, let's bring in our guest for the show, it's Donna Halper. Donna Halper, PhD. Hello, Donna. <laughs> yeah, and now I'm going to sound intelligent, eh? <laughs> Donna, tell us. Talk about engineering. Do I really have to talk about engineering? <laughs> Give us just a, a couple sentences about yourself. Tell us what you do, and then uh, we'll get and in, jump into the questions and answers. Okay, I'll say I like engineers. How's that? 
engineers are some of my best friends. But uh, let's see. I am an author. I'm the author of five books. I'm a media historian. Uh, I'm a college professor. I'm a radio programming consultant. I'm a former DJ. And I'm the woman that discovered the rock root Rush, and they dedicated their first two albums to me. And you can see me in a, the documentary about them from last year. And you can also see me on YouTube in the um, uh, video that they shot last summer on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Wow, very cool. Hey, you, you know, you, you mentioned something I'm really curious to try to get figured out here. You said you discovered the rock group Rush. Now, I, I don't really understand what that means to discover a rock, uh, to discover any band. What does that mean to discover a band in, in the radio business? Well, once upon a time in a kingdom far away, back when uh, DJs played some of their own records, uh, there used to be a position called music director and another called program director. Now the program director still exists, but the job has changed, ditto for the music director. But back when I was doing it, the music director was the person who listened to the new songs and helped decide what would be played on the station. Some radio stations gave the music director more autonomy than others. In some cases, they literally were just sort of the assistant to the program director. In other cases, the music director really was the decision maker with, you know, helping the program director as well, because so much music would come in back in those days. So one night I was sitting in my office listening to new music, and I got this record in literally a plain brown envelope. Um, sent from a friend of mine up in Canada, and I've told the story a bunch of times, so I won't bore everybody with it, but the short version is that I listened to it, and it was by a band that I'd never heard of called Rush, and the moment I played the first song that I put the needle down on, I knew immediately that it was a perfect record for the city that I was in, which was Cleveland. And so discovering the band basically meant that I was the one who helped their career get started. I was the one who got them their first United States airplay. It led to them getting a contract with a record label in the States, getting signed by a U.S. talent agency to book them. And it also, for me, was the start of a almost 38-year friendship. Well, okay, now we know. And you said there's a YouTube video out there um, that, that folks can watch and see you in about, about Rush. And there's a section on your website uh, about you and Rush, right? At DonnaHelper.com? Yep, and they can also, anyone can go online, just Google or Bing or whatever, uh, Donna Halper Rush Discovery Story. A few years ago, I wrote the entire story of how I discovered the band. And um, obviously... As a music director, I tried to help promote a lot of bands, but Rush were one of the few bands who kept in touch over the years. I gave a lot of bands airplay. I got a lot of bands their start. I got a lot of bands to, you know, become popular and never heard from any of them again. But with Rush, they're a very loyal bunch of guys, and they care deeply about the people that have helped them out. And as I said, they have kept in touch over the years. They've had a bajillion records sold. They're, you know, they've gotten the Order of Canada. God willing, at some point, they'll get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They do have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And, you know, they're, they are kind of what 
rock and roll is about in a good way because a lot of people stereotype rock musicians as they're just like crazy party animals and yeah there are some of them who are like that but Rush they're family men they love music they they are still out there with for all intents and purposes the original members they're still performing they love the music they love the fans they still come up with new material God bless them it's a privilege to be part of their success story Hey, uh, Don, thanks for, for the, the stories about Rush there, and we can come back to that if you want to. You know, what I really want to make sure we, we delve into on the show uh, this evening is, is you're in programming, and the show is usually about engineering. We've got two other engineers on the show here, Chris Tobin and Chris Tarr, and I, I'm, I really am interested in, in hearing your thoughts and get Chris and, and, and Chris to, to jump in here too when they, when they want to. Your thoughts about you know, we all have the same goal in, in radio, in a radio station. We want to make compelling um, programming, compelling content, and deliver it to the listener in a way that they can hear, um, that, that, that it sounds good, um, that they want to stay with it. And it, it seems like, you know, if, if you ever have a time when ratings go down, well, engineering may blame programming, programming may blame engineering. Well, we were off the air three times last month, or uh, our station just doesn't sound good, or the, the process is not, not adjusted right. Don, I want to hear, start to hear some of your thoughts, and I'm sure we'll jump in with some questions. Your thoughts about programming and engineering interacting with each other to make radio better and make it as, as good as it can be. Well, I'm old school. I think every program director should take an engineer to lunch. And I mean that sincerely because I think that we work different hours. Now, I'm a night person, so I was very often around when the engineers were working. But by and large, I know an awful lot of program directors and music directors who can spend their entire life and never see the chief engineer. He or she, and it's usually a he, is sort of this shadowy figure who pops in every now and then, and you call him when something goes wrong. And I'm not real persuaded that that's the way to have the best relationship. I really believe that engineers and programmers not only want the same thing, but they could speak the same language given the opportunity. And I think the first step is to just kind of get to know each other. I, as a radio consultant, I was very fortunate. I worked with some excellent engineers, and they kind of taught me a little bit of the jargon. But most of us who are in programming, we know what's wrong, but we don't know the words for it, if you know what I'm saying. It's like when I listen to audio and I, it just sounds, when it just doesn't sound listenable, I know it doesn't sound listenable, but I don't always know how to explain it. And it seems to me the best thing that you guys could do would be to help me, not just me, Donna, but, you know, help those of us in programming to acquire the vocabulary. I think there's an assumption that, oh, everybody today is a techie. And no, I don't think everyone is. Many of us were kind of like, we know what's wrong. We don't know how to express it. And I don't want to have the kind of relationship with my engineers where the only time I talk to them is where something is wrong. If something's right, I want to be able to praise them for it. And I want to know what I can do to make sure it stays that way. It, 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 does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I acted, oh, I'm sorry. Am I cutting somebody off? No? No, go ahead. I was, I, I'll have a point after you're done. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, I have to say that I was very fortunate early on in my career to work with a gentleman uh, as an apprentice and uh, he had been around the block many times and had said look kid <laughs> when, the, when that phrase was used a lot uh, this is how it's going to work either you get to know the people that make things 
happen around here, the people that make the money, oh, you're not going to have a job for long, or you're going to wind up in a closet, and it's not going to be any fun. I'm like, well, in high school, I wound up in a locker a couple of times, so I know what that meant. Okay, fine. So I le quickly learned to talk marketing speak, programming, sales, the general manager speak, and all that other stuff early on. And I have to say that as a result, I do have the pleasure of lunch with the PDs from time to time, general managers, sales managers, <laughs> and the marketing folks. And uh, it works out very well. I know I have many uh, colleagues who don't have that thinking on, on, on the table. And sometimes I sit and listen to their stories and realize, wow, if only you take that one step, maybe, you know, do that lunch thing or a coffee break and just try and discuss in layman's terms the audio question. It doesn't sound right. And I, I've come up with many ways of explaining how it doesn't sound right or it does sound right. And you're right. Uh, there are no easy ways to do it with folks who don't really get the technology. I, I think, too, that, you know, sometimes we put the, you know, we, we say, well, you know, the, the programmers need to learn some engineering speak. On the other hand, I think a lot of times engineers need to learn human speak. <laughs> I mean, for, for many years, I, you know, many years before this, I was on the air and, and in programming before I went into engineering. And I, I work with a lot of program directors who go, you know, you're the first guy I've worked with in engineering who can actually explain this to me. And, and I don't walk away not knowing what's going on. And so I think, you know, sometimes, too, engineers need to remember that there's a whole other world to what, what they do besides fixing stuff. And another thing that I find, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but it seems like a good way to explain how engineering impacts a radio station is, you know, formats and, and, and program directors and everything, they affect the arbitrage number to the left of the decimal point. A lot of what engineering does affects the number on the right of the decimal point, be it, you know, audio processing, uh, equipment that functions right, staying on the air, that sort of thing. And, and those are ways, you know, that, that we contribute. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, I, I, I completely agree with Donna's assessment that the programmers and the engineers need to be on the same page and, and talk, you know, as much as they can. But I think sometimes that engineers are their own worst enemy because they do think that everybody knows this stuff. And you say, well, duh, it sounds like crud, you're putting in, you know, uh, an MP3 in there, you know, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we take that for granted. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that's an important job, you know, for, for the, there's those. Also, there's also different levels of knowing. Like, for example, I just got my Ph.D. a few weeks ago. It's something I'd always wanted to do. And, you know, it just it took me nine years going part time. But, you know, at least I finally got it done. And I found that even in academia, there's this whole different language and I didn't speak it. Now, I don't think of myself as a particularly stupid person. I just feel like I haven't been exposed to certain things. And I'm a very show-me-don't-tell-me kind of person. You know, if somebody wants me to learn something, whether it's learning how to do Skype or whether it's learning how to do whatever, don't just give me a manual. Because nine times out of ten, the manual is written for people that just, uh, I don't know, I don't think they hang out with humans very often. Um, <laughs> whereas if somebody just takes me aside and says, okay, now if we do this, then this will happen because for me I really want to know why are things happening I'm, I'm sort of a why junkie if you know what I'm saying I'm like you know why daddy why mommy and I think most of us in programming and in music are kind of like well how come that record didn't become a hit why didn't that band happen you know this sort of thing and I'm like that about engineering too it's like Jesus we did all the right things why does it still not sound good and I find that when I ask that of an engineer, very often they get real defensive, like I've just insulted their children, when in fact, no, I'm not trying to be insulting, I'm just trying to find out, well, like, 
geez, I expected X and I got Y and I'm trying to understand it. Yeah, that actually is, I, I run into that a lot with engineers, uh, even when I, before I became one and I was on the air, you know, it, it is, it's, it's almost like it's an affront to what they do. Um, but I, I think too, that, that one of the things, and, uh, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of almost what you're saying is, I, I think sometimes it's helpful to, uh, as engineers, ask the right questions. When you say it doesn't sound right, uh, you know, instead of just going, well, what do you mean? Or why? You know, just, uh, you start to kind of, you know, ask this, ask some questions to kind of get in the right direction. Okay. Um, you know, what, what do you like? Uh, what don't you like? What, you know, what state, what, what, uh, you know, if you're talking about all like audio processing, what radio station do you like? You know, what is it? what does that sound like? And, you know, sometimes it's, it's a matter of, of leading this, the person down the path. And, uh, it reminds me of a, of a midday person we had here at the radio station here many years ago. We used to joke, she'd always, always laugh at me because she'd talk about the thing, of, the thing with the thing. And I'd say, well, what's the problem? Well, it's this, the thing with the thing is not working. And, you know, we'd always almost be a game trying to figure out what the thing was. And, uh, but, you know, that is, it's, it's, it's this <clears throat> almost different world between the creative types and the, and the non-creative types trying to, to find that common ground. And there's one other element here, and I'm sure you guys have talked about it before, just coming as I do from programming, and there's some people that might be listening that don't have a clue what we're talking about. But there's a, a third element here, and that's management. Um, I had the privilege a long, long time ago of working with a consulting engineer that I, I'm sure you guys know, a guy by the name of Grady Motes. Great and, guy. Um, yeah, Grady is wonderful. Um, he is one of the best engineers, and I was very, you know, I'm not saying you guys are not, but I'm saying in terms of people I've worked with, um, and he was very good at explaining things, and he called his company loud and clean, and I'm not trying to plug his company. I'm talking about this was a real issue back in the 70s, back in the 80s, where you had some managers who wanted the station to be loud. They didn't care how else it sounded as long as it was loud. Whereas you had engineers who were like, yeah, but if we're going to have loudness, we also want the signal to sound clean. And I can't tell you how many stations I still listen to that it's like one or the other rather than both. Oh, absolutely. I had a chance to work with Grady early on in my career uh, when I worked for Noble Broadcast, and uh, he came down to do some work with us on some uh, transmitters. And we were talking about audio, and he liked some of the things I was doing, which I'd learned from some other folks earlier on. And uh, he said to me, he goes, well, I see you using these uh, RCA uh, FM exciters on your transmitter. And I said, yeah, we're looking to replace them, but at the moment I have no choice. He goes, you know, you can make them sound a little cleaner, a little better. You can get about another percent of modulation out of them. I said, really? And it turns out you change a varactor diode in a certain way, and it was something else we did. And sure enough, it improved on the circuit design of the, the unit. And that was my you know, foray into that and learning more about the exciters and pre-distortion and whatnot. But talking with him, I realized that you know, he, he understood, you know, the, the, we'll say, the, the, the technical discipline of it, but then had that, the, the knack for being able to apply the non-technical and say, okay, with the two of these, we can make some good stuff. And, and I have to say, every time I've met him over the years, uh, read any of his papers, or talked to him at the NAB, it's always a learning experience. I mean, you know, he is definitely you know, up there with one of the guys that just knows it, gets it, loves it, and you know, he's got a great—he's a great human being when it comes to just talking to him. You know, I, I think another important thing is to build that trust between the engineers and the programming people and management. Uh, you know, the stations I'm at now, the program director pretty much. 
uh, you know, he'll tell me if there's something wrong, but pretty much gives me free reign with things like audio processing and, and the types of equipment that I order because, you know, I mean, I've been there eight years. He trusts my decisions on these things. And, you know, so I think that also means a lot because I, th I think a lot of times engineers, not on purpose, but tend to be evasive about things that they do and it's things the that they're doing and, and things that they're working on. And, uh, you know, not, and not being intentional or, or even being, uh, you know, wrong about it. It's just that's the way they are because they, they're afraid to be over technical or whatever. Uh, but I do think that that relationship between programming and engineering is, is really important. And I think that when it meshes and when the goals are the same and when, you know, the each side trusts each other, it's amazing some of the things you can accomplish. It's also nice to talk to the listeners. I mean, we have some listeners tonight who might not normally listen to your show because they're not normally engineers, um, but they might be listening because, you know, they knew I was going to be on, not like I'm so swell, but, you know, they might possibly listen because they know who I am or they like my work or whatever. And those are the kinds of people I enjoy talking to, not just like, oh, yeah, they know me, it isn't that nice. I'm talking about the average listener. The average listener very often can tell you that they find a particular station kind of hard to listen to. They like the music, but they just find it hard to listen to, and they can't always explain why. And that's sort of like a red flag to me to kind of check out the processing and, you know, see if, in fact, the station is unpleasant to listen to over a long period of time. Because when a station is coming across in such a way that it's, you know, again, I don't know the technical stuff. I'll just go back to loud or processed or whatever but I've heard stations that just oh my god they sound so muffled they sound so flat they sound like you know they're broadcasting from a sewer or something and I don't know what's causing it but I know that if it bothers me it probably bothers other people that are average listeners as well and maybe they don't know why so they just go listen to someplace else oh isn't that the truth that's a that that's something that that I've always uh, tried to relate to to programmers and program directors. Hey, make sure the station doesn't sound in such a way that people tune away and they don't know why. It just it got on their nerves. They were tired of listening to it. And was it the content, or was it the way the station sounds? As engineers, we've got to make real sure it's not because it's the way the station sounds uh, technically uh, speaking. That's that's a tough that's a tough line to walk because uh, there are some programming folks that just don't want to hear of it. And then there were some engineers that just, you know, they have their way in it, end of story. I worked with a program consultant uh, years ago, many years ago, at a radio station. And I, I'll never forget, we sat down, and he said, I like what's going on. It sounds good, but we have to remember, most of our audience is listening to this radio station on very small speakers. So if you can picture, those are watching, you can see my hands, the shape of the speaker is about three inches in diameter in the car, and that's what it has to sound best at. So our audience is female, the music is such... You need to make it so it sounds right and doesn't scare them away or you know, fatigue them. I'm like, okay, that's the tall order, I think. And it was interesting to go through the process with them, working with them on the audio processing, but I learned a lot. And I have to say, it was, uh, it was, there were some interesting things that perked my interest, piqued my interest, and I decided to start reading up on the neurosciences of the hearing and the brain, and I started, met, met a gentleman, Emil Torek, who has passed away, and I got a chance to actually sit and talk with him about all these things and years later it's you know Frank Foti's worked on it uh, uh, Bob Barban and others have done all this stuff in the processing it's just fascinating when you have a chance to sit with the programming folks and get into their world a little bit and then try and apply what we know in engineering or the technical discipline it's just it's it's amazing and that there programming really is something Pete Salant that I worked with there really is something to be said for that um, I've noticed even myself you know that the way I listen 
may not be the way somebody else listens. I think there's an assumption among those of us that are in the industry. And it's like, oh, everybody knows, everybody understands. And the reality is, no, they don't. Not everybody has the fanciest and schmanciest equipment. Not everybody has the brand new state-of-the-art smartphone, whatever, with the iPad, with the this, with the that. You know, we may be early adapters in some ways. Not everyone else is. And if we're tuning or if we're adapting our station to the kinds of stuff that we have at home, we have to think about, like, does everybody have that? Is everyone an early adopter like we are? And in many cases, no, they're not. Absolutely not. You're right. I, I've made that mistake on a couple of occasions. But, you know, listening to uh, what we're doing and talking about what we're doing here, one of the things I wanted to tell you guys, uh, what I've done over the years to sort of break the ice, I learned this early on, which it actually helped. I worked at a company years ago, and the uh, VP of the division, actually was the VP of news for the division, decided one day to, uh, to come to the engineering department and talk to us and explain why he has a problem with engineering and the, and the technicians on staff. And we had about, uh, you know, about 30 people on staff, so there's a lot of people from the POCAT. And I have to say, this guy, he was very good in managing people, talking with folks, very comical, and uh, understood enough techno te technology that he was a first adopter, tried to apply it to his division to make money, and uh, when he came to engineering and couldn't get them to understand it, he got frustrated. So one day he came to us and said, you know what you guys need to do? You need to get a sense of humor. So I'll never forget this, and here's the book he gave us. Okay? There we go. See if you can see that. For those of you who don't have video, it's Dogbert's Management Handbook. And Ooh. in this book, <laughs> it's a classic. This book was something that we just sat there and laughed. I enjoyed it because I was already you know, the, the wise-ass to begin with at the place, but uh, that's just me. And, and it was fun. And I realized over the years that that's what you need to do is sort of trying to find a, you know, the people skills, but a little comedy can help break the ice. So what I do now is in my office, you'll find that book. The, I'll show it again, Dogbert's Management Handbook, you know, white cover, red outline. And then next to that book is one I picked up a long time ago. And it, it, it says it all. It's really easy to read. It's the principles of guided missiles and nuclear weapons. And um, <laughs> it's from the Bureau of Naval uh, Personnel, 1959. So I leave the two books on the table all the time. So when people come in, they look down and they don't know what to make of it. And it sort of helps to, <laughs> sort of helps to sort of like, they stop right away what they're about to say about the stereotype engineer they're walking into the office with and then stop and go, okay, he's got a book about nuclear weapons and dog bird. I don't know how, what to do. It works every time. I'm able to open, open the sentence, a you know, conversation with, hey, how's it going? What, what brings you by? And, and then they just they get disarmed immediately. And no pun intended with the other book. There. What I find particularly amusing as a, as a media historian, in addition to engineers that are into dog bird and nuclear weapons and you know, things of that nature, um, it's just how the industry has changed in a relatively short amount of time. Um, I, many of you out there listening and also you guys that I'm talking to tonight, you're aware that I do a lot of media history. And I'm holding up a magazine here. This is uh, Popular Science from 1926. And you notice two old guys wearing headphones and, you know, everything old is new again. And they're talking about wow, you know, they're listening to politics on the radio and you've got the righty and you've got the lefty and they're both plugged in and they're both arguing with each other about politics. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, you know, I grew up at a time when you edited tape manually. 
you took the little razor and yep. you tried to splice it and you tried to make sure that the splice was in the right place and then you hoped that people couldn't hear the splice. Today it's all digital and you know here we are I'm sitting in one place you're sitting somewhere else we're having this great conversation as recently as about 10-15 years ago we couldn't do any of this. It, it's just so amazing to me sometimes. Don, I want to jump in here and ask you something about about programming consulting. Um, uh, when when you when you go to a new client who said, Donna, we need help. We we want our ratings to go up. We want to serve our community better. We want people to at least think we're serving them better and listen to us. What what what, what do you do when you first go into a station? What do you analyze to help a station handle their programming better? Well, I've, uh, I've been a consultant for 28 years, coming on to 29. My specialty is small and medium markets. The first thing I want to do is I want to compare that station to what else is available in the market. A lot of times, I, I just came back from a client in Alaska a few months ago, um, and the problem there was that the format that my client was doing, four other stations were doing it and there was really no difference between what they were doing and what everyone else was doing. First thing I try to look at is creating a compelling reason to listen. I believe, very simply, a station needs to be live as much as possible, it needs to be local as much as possible, and whatever its format, it's got to be interesting and address a need that isn't being met. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go around, talk to people, see what they like, what they don't like. I'm going to go to the malls. I'm going to go to a movie. I'm going to just basically wander around with people, make like a tourist. Where do people go to get their news? You know, it's a myth that radio's dead. Radio is not dead. Radio could not be more alive. It's killing itself by constantly cloning other stations, voice tracking, no offense to stations that to save money have to voice track, but I'm saying be live as much as possible because people want to think of their favorite station as a best friend. They want to think of the personalities as people they know, people they like. So like I said, what I'm going to try to do first and foremost is I'm going to try to create a best friend for them. I'm going to try to create a station that they feel like, wow, if I'm not listening to that station, I'm missing something. Okay, all right. So when, when you analyze, do you analyze all their competitors, or do you do you? Um, what if a station just doesn't know what to do? Look, we're not beholden to this format. Um, we we want to get bigger ratings. We want to get a bigger audience. How do you analyze, um, back up and analyze a market and decide what you're going to do? Well, first, of course, obviously, I'm going to do market research. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to do as many interviews as I possibly can. I'm going to get a feel for what the market is like. Is it mostly a tourist market? Is it mostly a sports market? Is it a young market? I had a client one time who really wanted to do classical music because he personally liked classical mm -hmm. music. Yeah. Median age in his market was 21, okay? And they yeah. were not listening to his wonderful classical station. He and five of his friends loved it. Everybody else, they wanted to hear rock and roll, thank you very much. So 
after I get done surveying the audience, talking to as many people as possible, listening to what's out there, doing a little bit of, you know, monitoring of not only the station, but how it stacks up with its competitors, then I come to some kind of a decision about what the niche is in the market and what needs to be done to create that new station, and then we go about creating it. Hmm, okay, all right, all right. And then, um, boy, it, it, is it a real challenge sometimes to work with a station owner to persuade them that maybe, maybe what they've been doing all along is the reason that, that they called you in? In other words, I guess on the one hand, they, they've hired you to come in and, and consult them. On the other hand, I guess sometimes they don't want to hear what you have to say. Absolutely, and if you're a consulting engineer, you know the same thing that I go through as a radio programming consultant. We're very much like doctors. We can go in and give advice to the patient, but if the patient doesn't follow it, what can we do? You know, so you put it out there the best you can. They're calling you usually because deep down in their heart they know there's a problem. So you sit down with them. You explain what your research has shown. You know, I talked to a hundred and something people. I went here, I went there. Here's what they said they really wish they could find in this market. We can do this. It may not be what you personally will like, but it'll make money for you. And then you can always find a, a place to put on the station that you personally like. So, yeah, sometimes people really buy into that, and I've been very fortunate. I, you know, at the risk of sounding self-serving, I've been pretty good at what I do over the years, and I'm very honest with my clients. But, no, they don't always like what I have to say, and I have found over the years that sometimes I leave and they just go right back to what they were doing. But in other cases, they do take the advice, and they do create the kind of station that I believe and that research shows that will work in that market. See, you can't have a cookie cutter approach. You know that as well as I do. You can't go into a station and say, well, hey, you know, this is what worked in 20 other cities, because it may not work in yours. Every city, every city really is different. It sounds like a cliche. Yes, they all have certain things in common. They want information. They want sports. They want news. They want the hits, blah, blah, blah. But how they want it done is really different from city to city. There are some markets where I can get away with being a lot more cutting edge. There are other markets where I'm going to be a lot more conservative and a lot more careful. There's some markets where I'm going to do political talk and everybody's going to love it. There are other markets where that would be death. They don't want to hear it. They just want to escape from all the political talk. So you have to really have your finger on the pulse of what is missing in that city, and then you have to have an owner who is willing to go along with change. A lot of owners talk a great game of change, but when it comes down to it, it makes them nervous. If you're good at what you do, you're able to persuade them, to sell them on the benefits. I mean, rule number one in sales, sell the benefits. So I can try to sell the benefit of why they should make this change. I show them what the benefit will be to them, to the listeners, to the sales staff. Usually everybody buys in, we go with it, it's successful, and then everyone's happy. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but I'd like to believe that more often than not it does. I think that most owners really want to have a winning radio station. I, I'm not of the belief that, you know, owners are these vile individuals. I mean, yeah, I've worked with some that are terrible, and I'll bet you you have too. But most of the people I've worked with have been pretty great. And 
it's my job to sell them on what needs to change and then it's my job to make sure that it gets implemented the right way which means getting along with the engineers getting along with the sales staff training the announcers I'm not the kind of person that just walks in and fires people I'd rather give people a chance to do it the new way if they can terrific if they can't boy there sure are a lot of people looking for work out there we're talking with uh, Donna Halper. She is our guest, Donna Halper, Ph.D., and congratulations, Donna, on that. <laughs> uh, Donna Halper, Ph.D., radio uh, consultant on This Week in Radio Tech. And coming up after the break here, I'm going to hear a message from our sponsor. Uh, we're gonna, uh, uh, I'm going to tell you a little quote here from a professor at Boston College, and Donna may know this person, Michael C. Keith. And Michael says, okay. radio is like ice cream. You choose the station that tastes best to you. The flavor you like the best is going to give you enjoyment. And this is part of an article that we were talking about today from the Huffington Post, uh, radio makes people happier than TV or internet, according to a new study. That coming up in just a minute. But right now, I want to direct your attention to uh, our sponsor for this show, and that is uh, also happens to be my employer, and that's Axia Audio. And I really appreciate uh, the folks at Axia making the decision to uh, sponsor this show and help make it possible, help uh, help uh, defray some of my expenses in, in getting this done. Uh, Axia is the uh, inventor of a uh, system called LiveWire. It's live IP audio. It's live audio over IP, over Ethernet IP. And it's fully compatible. It uh, doesn't break any Ethernet IP rules. So you can uh, carry, transmit, uh, route, and mix live stereo or surround audio over standard IP networks using Cisco or HP switches. Uh, they do need to be high performance switches. Uh, I want to direct your attention to uh, a, uh, an article in uh, Radio Magazine. This is from RadioMagOnline.com. Uh, it's BYU, that's Brigham Young University, reconstructs uh, they're, they're part of their radio facility. Um, they have uh, both TV and radio, and they reconstructed their, uh, their on-air studios for radio. It's both BYU Radio and Classical 89. Uh, we can see some pictures here, and uh, if Burke has a chance to, uh, to show them uh, from this, uh, uh, this article, uh, there's a couple of uh, pictures here of studios at Brigham Young University. Here's one. You can see an Axia Element console kind of toward the lower left there. And in the rack down uh, underneath the, the table, you'll see uh, an Axia power station, and there's an Axia power station auxiliary unit. By the way, this is the same setup that they have at the TWIT network, which uh, I think right now they're in the process of moving to the new, to the new uh, TWIT location. They have a, an Axia element, does automatic mix minus, so that each of the participants on a, on a Skype show like this one or by telephone, uh, by other codecs, can all hear what they're supposed to hear, automatic mix minus. And uh, then it all, they also have the power station and the power station auxiliary unit, which is a backup power supply and more uh, audio inputs and outputs. Uh, the, since the system is based on IP technology, oh, here's a Here's another studio there. And by the way, these studios are connected to each other by just one piece of CAT6 cable carrying a one gigabit per second um, uh, audio data uh, over IP packets. Uh, Livewire is a really fascinating technology, and if you'd like to know more about it, I'd like you to go to the Axia website. Go to axiaaudio.com. And when you're at axiaaudio.com, let me have a quick look here. You can go to the support tab. Oh, I'm sorry. Go to the knowledge tab and then go to the uh, white papers. So at axiaaudio.com, click on knowledge and then go to the white papers area and you'll see a lot of different articles about uh, IP audio. One of them is called Introduction to Livewire. 
and this is version 2.1 of this document. Uh, you'll see, if you read this document, you're going to know all about IP audio and live wire in a, in a radio studio environment. Um, this, was, uh, this technology is a, a conglomeration of standards that are already out there, like um, uh, QoS and IGMP and multicast and RTP, real-time protocol. Uh, these standards are all put together along with a clocking scheme that makes it all work live. And that's what LiveWire is. So check out Introduction to LiveWire. Lots of other white papers, too, on the Axia Audio website. Um, Axia has the Element console, which you'll see about on the website. Also the new IQ console. I was pleased to just be able to instruct a whole bunch of Latin American engineers, like 75 engineers all together, about the IQ console in Miami uh, last week. And then the new Radius console, which we're just getting ready to ship the very first ones. Uh, so quite a range of pricing from the Radius at about $6,000. The IQ starts at $8,000 and is expandable up to 24 faders. And the Element console, which is a real full-featured big console that can do just everything you could possibly need. Check out our website, axiaaudio.com, and I would really appreciate if you check out the, uh, the white papers on that site. You're going to enjoy learning about Axia. Thanks very much to Axia Audio for sponsoring today. All right. Uh, uh, hey, I want to uh, check out this article here. Uh, someone sent me this article. I guess what Chris Tarr, did, did you send me this from the Huffington Post? I did. Post? Yeah, the, the headline, radio makes people happier than TV or Internet. Chris, how did you run across this, and what did you think about it when you read it? I actually, uh, somebody sent it to me, and I, I read it, and, you know, honestly, it kind of, I don't know that I'd put happy as, as the word I'd use, but I think it kind of uh, reinforced what I've been saying all along, which is the one thing that radio does very well, better than any other media, is make that personal connection. And a lot of what Donna was talking about fits right into that. And, you know, back in my programming days, I used to talk about, you know, I was in suburban Chicago, and the stations I programmed were up against these multi-million dollar stations from downtown. And I always used to say, you know, we all play the same music, it all sounds the same on the radio, it's what's in between the records that matter. And, you know, this kind of reinforces what I've been saying, which is, you know, it, it's about what's going on in between the records. If if you can make a connection with the community, if you can if you can make somebody who's listening to the radio smile at that moment, you've made a connection. You've made a friend. That person will stay with you. And and I think you know the article really talks about people don't have relationships with Pandora. You know, people listen to Pandora. They hear it. They have it on in the background. People have relationships with the radio station, and that's a lot about what this what this addresses. And I think. Uh, you know, engineering aside, as a former programmer, uh, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, people who are, are on the air or, or programming radio stations, even managing radio stations, need to remember that. You know, it's not a matter of, you know, Pandora will beat us or not beat us or whatever. Nobody's in love with Pandora. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to turn on Pandora to find out what's next. Uh, but if you're doing a, a good job running your radio station, that's what people are going to say about you. And that's what they're going to do. They're, they can't wait to get up and hear what the morning show is going to do. They can't wait to hear what the guy on the radio or the, the woman on the radio is going to say next. And if that's the case, you're doing it right. And that's kind of, you know, kind of what that article alludes to. Research has shown repeatedly, and I've done some of the research and so have lots of other people, that listeners think of their favorite station as a best friend. Okay, and they think of their favorite announcers as best friends. Um, when I wrote my most recent book about Boston radio, um, on the cover of it is Arnie Ginsberg, 
and for those who don't come from Boston, Arnie was your ultimate top 40 personality DJ. And as I said earlier, a good station is compelling. You feel like, oh my God, I'm going to really miss something if I don't listen. And Arnie was the kind of announcer where you felt like he was just talking to you. And every market has someone like that. Every market has, a, in, in our market here in Boston, we have an announcer on KISS 108, which is a top 40, uh, urban top 40. Uh, his name is Matty in the morning, Matt Siegel. And he's been there since 1981 doing mornings, reinventing himself for a new generation. My neighbors, who are like 10 and 12, listen to him. And so do their parents. And that's what good radio is. Good radio not only makes people happy, it makes people feel befriended. It makes people feel cared about. It makes people feel informed. And that's where, before when I was saying, I understand voice tracking, I understand automation, but if you can get that personal connection as much as possible, you are doing a kindness to the listener and you are making them feel like they are a part of an entire community. All right, so who's the next question? <laughs> I, I don't know. There's a question. I think she's. I mean, I, I, she can't be more right about this. And and we, you know, I know in the past we've talked about, you know, uh, even though we're a technology show, we've touched on things like radio versus the internet. How new technology, you know, we have to embrace new technology and extend it. And I mean, she can't be more right about that. I was uh, the other day. Uh, I still do uh, a show on the station in Door County, Wisconsin. Uh, on Sunday mornings, and they had a big triathlon up there, a big, uh, you know, it was a huge event, people up there from all over. Of course, the weather was hot, and, uh, you know, what what did we do on the air? We talked about, you know, keeping hydrated. We talked about the race, talked about people being there, and, you know, they had us on at the race, and the, the race organizers were just thrilled. It was like, wow, you know, you guys really cared about this event. Every other radio station in town was just kind of playing music, and we were talking about what was going on, and, you know, I, I think, you know, the people who talk about radio being dead, uh, don't get that part. You know, they just don't understand that, you know, again, it's, you know, Pandora is great. And if you want to just hear music, fine. You know, that's, that's fantastic. Satellite radio, same thing. If you want to hear music for a while, that's great. But you're not going to make this connection to it. If it's gone tomorrow, you're not going to miss it. And, and you know, if you're, if you're doing a good job programming your radio station, you know, people, when they, when they walk away from it, they're going to miss it. And that's when you know you're doing something right. And that is what's going to save radio. Not you know, competing with wireless. It's not competing with. It's it's going back to what what those basics that Don is talking about. Once we do that, you know, we're not. We have nothing to worry about with Pandora. That's what I stress with people, and that gentleman is what worries me more than anything else. Okay, one of the reasons I had to sort of reinvent myself as a college professor is I'll be very honest with you. There are not as many places for someone like me to consult. The problem is that in the small and medium markets, like back in the good old days, you used to start off in a small town, then you'd work your way up to a medium, then you'd work your way up to a large, and then, oh boy, you'd be in a major market. These days, with fewer and fewer places to be the farm team, fewer and fewer places for people to really develop their craft, there are fewer and fewer great personalities being developed. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, I can't find anything to listen to on the radio. 
okay, well, let's get back to training talent again, which is something I always have enjoyed doing, not just me, but the people that love radio love to be part of training the announcers of tomorrow, okay? Because the average listener wants you to succeed. They want to feel like you're their friend. And if they can be part of who you were when you were growing up, oh, I remember listening to him or her when they were just in a small town and now look at them, they're famous. These are just amazing things to remember. And I can tell you straight up, I've watched announcers develop from college radio to the point where they're now in a top 10 market. And you just feel like, wow, you know, they've improved, they've kept improving, they've kept reinventing themselves. That's what it's all about. Hey, uh, back on this, uh, this Huffington Post article, I uh, had a question about... Um, uh, Arbitron says that in, in a recent infinite dial study that 242 million Americans currently listen to radio each week and online radio consumption has doubled every year since 2001. Now, are both of those true? Are people actually uh, consuming that much more audio content? They may very well be. Um, keep in mind also, just because there's a new technology, it's not an either-or situation. A lot of people tend to look at any new technology and say, oh, this is going to replace what came before it. I can't tell you how many times I have heard that radio was going to be dead. It was supposed to be dead when TV came along. It was supposed to be dead when the Internet came along, etc., and etc. So, yeah, I think people are just consuming radio in different ways. It's also being measured in different ways. Um, Kirk and I were talking earlier this afternoon about the portable people meters, the PPMs. And, you know, remember the old days of diaries. Okay, so now you got the PPMs. Everybody's trying to find a way to determine how are people listening, when are they listening. And I think the reality is people want to listen more in more different venues in more different places. People are still listening in their cars. They're still listening to a variety of different kinds of programming. And wherever they can find it, terrific. If they can find it online, they're going to listen online. The other thing we need to remember, though, and I said this a little earlier, let me speak for all the Luddites out there and the Neo-Luddites. Not everyone has a good enough internet connection. We still live in a world where people are using dial-up. And for them, the idea that there's still a great radio station that they can turn on in their car, you know, plain ordinary old school radio. If it's interesting, if it's fun, they're going to listen to it. And then you have the new generation. Yeah, they're going to listen online. They're going to listen to podcasts, etc., etc. Let a thousand flowers bloom. The more ways that people can listen to radio, the more they can fall in love with radio all over again. Right. And, and keep in mind, too, that like the infinite dial studies where they talk about online listening, that also includes online listening to terrestrial radio stations. So yeah. Yeah. it's also not a mutually exclusive thing. It's not if they're not listening to the radio, they're listening to something other than radio online. Uh, they very well could be listening to uh, you know, terrestrial radio on, and, you know, online through some sort of device. Donna, you mentioned the, the people, personal people meter, the PPM technology. Uh, we've just got about 10 more minutes left in, in the show, um, so let me probably need to pick that topic and maybe one more at the most. But, Donna, what are you uh, advising? Or maybe you can't give away trade secrets, but yeah, how, how are stations changing anything about how they're programming so that they, they get ranked the best by the personal people meter technology? And maybe what surprising things has PPM tech brought out 
to the way um, stations program or things that we're doing wrong in the past with this new tech? Well, first of all, I'm a firm believer in the fact that if you live by ratings, you die by ratings. I think there are some stations that are never going to get the big ratings, but they're going to have a really strong cult following that supports them, that loves what they're doing. I was on the air in New York many years ago, and I worked at a jazz station. It was a WRVR in New York, and we never had big ratings, but we made money because the people that loved our programming supported it 100%, and I think you're going to see some of that. I think also that certain formats, particularly the younger formats, and to some degree urban, some certain kinds of niche formats are having a little trouble figuring out the whole PPM thing, because the wearing the people meter, uh, I think they pay what between five and ten bucks to wear it. Uh, young people, as far as I know, are not eager to wear something for five or ten bucks, and you're still back to the old problem of passionate listeners who listen long periods of time who tend to be older and then other people who are very willing to engage in this great adventure of like wearing the portable people meter but I'm not real sure that it's carrying everybody that you want it to carry I'm not sure that you're getting all the people that you want represented so it's still fairly new God bless Arbitron they've done a great job of selling it I'm hopeful that we're still going to find some good ways to measure the younger audience because I'm not real persuaded that we're really measuring for example the Hispanic audience or the African American audience or even some of the younger audience so I guess I look at the portable people meter like a tool it's telling me some things I need to know but so is just talking to people telling me some things I need to know hmm okay all right um, I know on a couple of shows we've, we've touched very briefly on actual formatic or maybe spot placement changes that stations have made or maybe the different structures in their promotions to, uh, to try to take advantage of the different, instead of, instead of writing the station down uh, in a diary, you know, you don't have to say on the air anymore, if, uh, if you listen to Q92.1, be sure you write it down. You know, yeah, you don't Q92, have to say that that's how you write it? What's that? I said, we used to skate as perilously close as you could skate before Arbitron would get upset. You know, Q92, that's how you write it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> write, it down, write it down and tell a friend. Yes, yes. Yeah. Bring a guest. <laughs> yes. Uh, hey, speaking of, of promotions, Donna, what kind of promotions nowadays are, do you think are, are working for radio stations to, to gain listener um, uh, interest and maybe interest for the, whoever the advertiser or advertisers are that are sponsoring it? Have, is, is, is there anything new under the sun in terms of, of uh, promotions? One thing I got to say, uh, before, we, before I answer that question, I just wanted to say one more thing about what I'm noticing. One thing I'm noticing is that people have a much shorter attention span now than they did 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, and a number of people in a school of thought called Media Ecology have written extensively about how much more distracted people are. So if you're running, you know, five or six or seven commercials in a break, and you're, oh, you know, we'll be back in two minutes with more music, uh, they're gone. Okay, they already left. 
So you have to really address the fact that your audience has a shorter attention span, break up your commercial sets, do your commercials in a more interesting way. As far as promotion goes, I think you really do need to take a multimedia approach in the world today. You've got to be on websites. You've got to be on billboards. You've got to be on every possible venue that you can think of that will give people a chance to see your call letters and see your personalities. The call letters alone are not enough. It's the personalities that people are bonding with. And I'm fascinated by what a lot of people are doing with their website. And sadly, a number of stations are not maximizing their websites. Um, I look at some websites and it's like, wow, they haven't changed this in months, <laughs> you know? Whereas I look at others and they've got the new pictures up from yesterday's promotion and they've got the new podcast and this and that. I think the big difference today with promotion is you have to react a lot more quickly and you have to ask yourself, who am I talking to? If you have a salesperson who just sold a particular client and the client wants to give away something that totally does not relate to your audience, don't give it away. Find some other way of doing it. I know that sounds really like, well, that's a truism, but I really hear some promotions that just don't sound like they fit the station that they're on. And maybe they made somebody happy, but they may have gotten a listener to you know, go somewhere else. And in the really competitive universe that we're in right now, we want to make as many positive impressions as we can. I'll say it again. Be their best friend. Whatever you're doing, be their best friend. I had a focus group I did one time. It was a morning man in this town, a guy by the name of Jess Kane, and he was running 18 minutes of commercials an hour, okay? And yet, when we did the focus group, people were like, wow, and he has so few commercials. And when we probed that, it was, he didn't do them like commercials. He did them like just informing the audience and saying, wow, you know, he went to the bakery the other day and he had a great croissant and, you know, it was a great bakery. Let me tell you about it. It sounds corny, but he did it in such a way that he sounded plugged into the community and people couldn't wait to see if they were going to meet him at the bakery and, you know, buy him a <laughs> croissant. So That's Bob Hope with the Pepsodent commercial. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> It's old, it's corny, but some things never go out of style. And reaching out to the average person, they not only want to like you, they want to be you. They want to meet you. Get out there where they are and make them feel like you care about them and make them feel like you understand their lives. Don't give them just, you know, oh, you know, here's a $50 gift certificate. Get out there. Go to their office. Get them coffee and donuts. You know, get them a babysitter for their kids so they can go out some night. People are struggling. Do something to make their life easier, and they'll never forget it. You know, while you were saying that about the fellow who went to the, the bakery and, and, and just talks, of, talks about it, sure reminds me of this network, the Twit Network, when Leo does his advertising. I mean, A, he does, do, uh, he does interact with the advertisers the way that he says. Like if he says he uses carbonite, he uses carbonite. If he uses uh, any of the other sponsors' products, like for quite a while, Ford was advertising and the Ford Sync. Uh, so yeah, Leah was driving a, a Mustang. Uh, so it, it, that that is so true. When you get someone who you're listening to, you're interested in that that you respect. Oh, by the way, I do use an actually a console at one of my radio stations in Cleveland, Mississippi. Um, 
uh, that does add a, a real air of, of realism and let you, it's kind of, it's like product placement in a, in, in a movie. Except I think it's it's even better to have somebody interact with you and say, "Hey, I'm I'm using this, and you might be too." I, let me pass that tip along to you. And there again, if it's presented in a way of just making your life easier, um, there are some talk show hosts who are just masterful at making you feel like, wow, you really need to have this because it will make your life easier. And that's the key. These are people who want to like you. They want to feel like they are a part of whatever it is you're selling, but they don't want you to sell them. They want you to inform them. It really is all about information. You know, the music you want, the information you need. And commercials can be part of that information, news, weather, whatever is essential to your particular market. Present it to them, make their lives easier, be their best friend. People will be loyal to you if you give them a reason to be. And if you're the account executive on that uh, particular read, you'll make good money. Absolutely. I, I worked at a, I, I, yeah, I worked at a place, a friend of mine was an account executive for a small radio show. You may have heard the talent. name is Paul Harvey out of Chicago. Paul Harvey, and, uh, good day. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, mimicked and, and made fun of or, or, you know, or flattered by many folks in the business, both radio and TV. But I had a chance to talk with him a couple of times. And I said to him, I said, so what's it like being the account executive on the Paul Harvey account? He goes, I do nothing more than sit at my desk and let the phone ring. I said, really? He goes, yeah, but Mr. Harvey, as we all called him, we never called him by his first name, Paul. He goes, he will not do a radio read of a sponsor unless he's used the product and if he doesn't like it he'll send it back and tell them why and don't call me again and one day he told me he got a phone call from some large account looking to get on the Paul Harvey radio show uh, program and um, Paul Harvey news I should say and he said to the guy uh, sure let me talk to Mr. Harvey and see what he says apparently Mr. Harvey had a bad experience with this product early on and said no I'm not interested I'm not going to do it and they threw money like you wouldn't believe mm -hmm. at him saying, look, we'll do, we want, he goes, my friend said, you don't understand, unless he uses it, he will not talk about it because he's yeah. not going to be honest with the audience. Yeah. I'm not going to just sell it. And I sat there going, wow. I mean, that's just like. Yeah, and, know, and we forget the power that we have, okay? Yeah. I think that a lot of people in radio are playing defense when they should be playing offense, Okay. We are not an industry that's in decline. We're an industry that still has an awful lot to offer. I have seen announcers promote a particular product or a particular event, and the place was packed just because that person provided that information in such a way that made people want to go out there. We had yeah. Arnie Ginsberg here in Boston. Um, he took a car hop back in the old days of car hops where you could kind of like go and get a burger or something. He took a car hop that nobody was going to and put the thing on the map to the point where every baby boomer in Boston can still sing the jingle <laughs> to that place. Adventure car hop. I mean, the place has been gone for decades. <laughs> and if I go to an old timers convention or do a talk about media history, all I got to do is sing the first couple of lines of the adventure car hop jingle and everyone can sing along. So, you know, these are still, these are the memories that a lot of people have. And I say to you, even in 2011, we could be making a whole new set of memories instead of apologizing for ourselves. I, I worked with a program director years and years ago, uh, he and I actually started out about the same time at this radio station, and uh, he was an assistant PD from where he came, and the company we worked for decided to make him program director of this radio station they just bought. 
uh, you know, had no ratings, and they said, look, it's an AM station, it's a thousand watt station, it's in a market that's very, uh, very competitive, and we think your ideas make sense. And we just hired a new engineer, that was me, who seems to be somewhat uh, maverick, aggressive in technologies, <laughs> and we think the two of you guys can make something happen. This guy talks to me one day and says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to get into the community. I'm not going to do live broadcasts on location just for uh, sales. We're not going to do it. So if you have a problem with that, you know, leave now. I said, no, no problem. So he comes up with this idea, and it, talking about what you're saying, you know, being part of the community or, or being a friend, a radio friend, we, he, we're, we're talking about a promotion. He goes, I want to put a box, simple box, out on the street. It's, it's small, and people have to guess what's in it, so we'll have the radio audience call in and do this whole bit. And it was basically the mystery box. It was a square box, black, with a question mark on it. And you give out clues throughout the day. But I want to be able to broadcast live from this place and move around town. That was easy. I said, no problem. So we go, and he goes and gets this box built, calls me up, says it's going to be delivered to the transmitter site because it's a small box. It's just enough to fit on the back of a, uh, a flatbed truck, you know, a pickup truck. So we thought, we get to the transmitter site, and there it is. It's a 10-foot, 12-foot uh, square wooden box, huge. Uh, and we're like, wow, how what are we going to do with this? This guy ingeniously thinks, wow, what if we take it on the back of a huge flatbed <laughs> with revolving lights, and then tell people, guess where it's going, and you'll win $1,000 if you could tell us where it's going to go. Just to turn around the negative. And I sat there and watched this guy go from something that we were just flabbergasted, like, this is going to be a trouble thing, we're not going to make this work, to all of a sudden the audience got involved. And talking about you know, people showing up, like you said, in, in Boston, we, we made this announcement, the black box is on the prowl, tell us where it's going to be, and we'll give you $1,000. We wound up closing down streets. The police called us up and said, what are you people doing with a box on the back of a flatbed? Uh-huh. And he, he, he goes like, we're just moving it from our storage area to our studios. Wow, what's the matter? People are blocking the streets. They're jumping on the truck. They're asking the driver where he's going. And he, he's like, I can't tell you. Just follow. There are a lot of cars and people on the street heading downtown. And he's like, wow, I don't know. We just called a moving service. Uh, you know what? We'll get our guys down there. We'll find out what's going on for you. Hangs up the phone, calls me up, says, get the van. Turn on the RPU, or you know, those of us who know is the Marty. And he goes, we're going live. Where? Just get in the van. Let's go. And it, I kid you not, it went from the radio station that had no ratings, nobody even knew it existed in town, to within three months we were the talk of the town. Well, and the general another, sat. Yeah. General well, manager's like. Doesn't even surprise me. Um, one promotion that we did that was cheap to do and really worked well at an adult contemporary station. We made up children's T-shirts. And we had people send us pictures of their cute kid wearing the T-shirt because we found that everybody wants to show off their cute kid. And we worked it out with a couple of, uh, you know, clothing stores where we came up with, uh, you know, clothes for your kid, this sort of thing. And we got all of these pictures of kids wearing the T-shirts, where in many cases the adult might take the T-shirt and put it in a closet or something, never wear it again. All the kids, and they were so, they really were, they were so cute. Didn't cost much to make up the T-shirts. Boy, a lot of people sure wore them. And, uh, you know, here again, your thing with the box, sometimes you got to think outside the box. you got to be creative. And this gets back to what we started talking about at the beginning of the show. Engineers have some great ideas. Programmers have some great ideas. Listeners have some great ideas. You put it all together, you can still come up with an interesting, exciting radio station. I think radio's coming back, guys. I really do. 
I would like to uh, end the show on that happy note. Our hour is up and a little bit more. Uh, Donna Halper, thank you so much. This has been an invigorating show, and we've got, had a lot of comments in the chat room. And I'm, I'm really, you've got me excited about my business again. Well, do me a solid, would you, because we were still having technical problems from my end. So if people uh, didn't see me responding to their chat, they shouldn't take it personally. I couldn't see it. Um, I'm very willing to have people get in touch with me by email if they'd like to. And uh, you, uh, your email is not on your lower third here, and I believe you didn't have any objection to, uh, to giving no, it out. So if people want no to contact you. No problem at all. I love hearing how, from people. How should folks uh, contact you? You can email me at DLH, that's my initials, DLH, at DonnaHalper.com. I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Devorah Leah, which is my Hebrew name, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Leah, L-E-A-H, one word, Devorah Leah, and there you yeah. go. Good deal. And that is on the lower third, and I'll try to stick that in the show notes at our website uh, this week in radiotech.com. And her, uh, Guys, her thank website. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I hope that I didn't disappoint you because I don't. Oh, speak no, about not at all. Tech. This has been a, been a great deal of fun. We get tired of talking about electrons all the time. So this is, you know, we're engineers like everybody else has an opinion, you know, on how the radio station should be run. You know, if they only did this, only did that, we'd have a much, we'd have better ratings and it'd be more fun. Um, hey, so, people uh, would hire me as a consultant, you know. I mean, I could turn their station around. Around, you know. Sure, absolutely. So Donna Halper, that's H-A-L-P-E-R.com, DonnaHalper.com. Check out her website. And we never got around to talking about Donna's other passion, which is radio and broadcast history. We're going to have to have you back, Donna, and you can talk about this, uh, the Boston radio history that you know so much about. And I know the history of a lot of other cities as well, because I, you know, I do presentations all over the country. What I'm up to is trying to preserve the history of our profession, because Radio is, this is where my heart is. Thank you so much, Donna. I appreciate it. And uh, Chris Tobin, thank you for being with us, the best-dressed engineer in radio from Manhattan, New York. Hello. You're welcome. You're welcome. And Chris Tarr, are you with us, Chris? I am. I've been thank uh, you for just fantastic. Uh, I really, uh, really enjoyed this episode. It's been great. Well, we're going to have Donna back another time if, if she'll grace us with her presence. So I, I appreciate well, both of you, you guys. And Donna, thank you. Thank you. Alrighty, our show's been brought to you by Axia Audio and the new Axia IP, uh, the new Axia IQ console. Check it out on the website at axiaaudio.com. Also, you can go to Axia Audio and sign up to get your copy of the Now catalog. It's beautiful. It's a coffee table piece. It's like the it's like the Sears Christmas wish book used to be. Big guy engineers like us. Thanks for joining us. You can check our website thisweekinradiotech.com, and you can download or watch uh, the podcast from. Uh, the uh, Twit website at twit.tv slash twirt, T-W-I-R-T, This Week in Radio Tech. Hey, thanks to Burke for switching the show from the, uh, the Twit headquarters in Petaluma, California. Looking forward to the new place getting built. I hope to be out there for the grand opening party. I really hope to see you guys out there. And, and uh, oh, you're welcome, yes. <laughs> okay, thanks, Burke. And we'll see you guys next week on This Week in Radio Tech. Bye-bye. <laughs>